on YouTube, the listed title of Maria Clara at Ibarra's first episode makes the show's intentions very clear. Maria Clara Impantes. Sir. Gumawa ka ng book review ng Noli Metanghire. Eh, hindi ko po gets ko anong saysay ng subject nyo sa course kong nursing. The premiere app is billed as Maria Clara but make it Gen Z. The show definitely lives up to what it says on the tin, with Barbie Forteza's clay character isekaying herself from the present day into the world of Jose Rizal's revolutionary novels. The teleserie, which premiered on October 2022 and ran for 105 episodes, proved to be a breakout hit. It ignited an all-too-rare spark of historical appreciation in mainstream conversation. Hits on TV now is oh. historical, no? Maria oh, Clara yes. at Ibarra. <laughs> no? And thanks to YouTube and Netflix, you can still tune into the show that even historian Xiao Chua found emotional. The full name of main character Clay is Maria Clara. Of course, this spunky Gen Zer is named for the character who has become synonymous with the archetype of the classic Filipina lady or dalaga. In fact, when you say the phrase Maria Clara dress, you probably know exactly what that looks like. If we go to the source material, here's how Jose Rizal described Maria Clara's modest way of dressing as translated by Charles Derbyshire. This is from a scene when Maria Clara is lying in bed, ill from heartbreak. Her head was covered with a handkerchief saturated in cologne, with her body wrapped carefully in white sheets, which swathed her youthful form with many folds under curtains of husi and piña, the girl lay on her kamagong bed. Her hair formed a frame around her oval countenance and accentuated her transparent paleness. Even in her sickbed, which, as Rizal takes pains to point out, is made of sturdy and expensive kamagong, Maria Clara is covered from head to toe, no inch of skin visible, her figure hidden under layers and layers of cloth. And not just any old cloth, they're woven from the most delicate most expensive kind in the colony, the one painstakingly made from the leaves of the pineapple, the gossamer fabric that we call piña. Welcome to the Colonial Department, the podcast where we take long-lost stories from Philippine colonial history and bring them to life. In this episode, we examine how an entire textile industry crumbled in the face of foreign-made, industrial-grade copycats. This is Season 4, Episode 10, A Flash Flood of Fast Fashion. Pineapples are not native to the Philippines. Like many of the Spaniards themselves, they arrived in the colony from the Americas via the galleon trade. Because of our friendly tropical climate, however, the sweet, spiky immigrant fruit quickly took root across the archipelago. Piña begins with a harvest of mature pineapple leaves, usually from the diminutive red variety. It takes anywhere from 18 months to 2 years to get leaves that are the right size. Once lopped off, the spiny sides are stripped and the fibers are scraped off. 
First, workers attack the tough outer layer with a broken slate. Then, the finer fabrics that are now exposed are carefully extracted by running a coconut shell across the length of the leaf. Just scraping the fibers off the leaves could take two whole days. The fibers, called liniwan, are washed, pounded, and washed again under running water, then dried under sunlight. Once that's done, weavers hand knot the fibers, spool them, and finally, using a foot-operated loom, weave them into a cloth. Weaving was a painstaking process. At best, weavers could only produce half an inch of fabric a day. Piña fibers were fine and delicate things. As one writer said, To work with the finest quality of piña, local producers had to place themselves under mosquito nets, for the threads broke at the mere movement caused in the air by a person walking. Broken piña fibers meant days and days of work could all go to waste. And because piña was so fragile, you couldn't use machines to speed up the process. When you work with piña, you work by hand. The tough, slow labor needed to make loads out of pineapples meant that piña was eye-wateringly expensive. How expensive? Let's look at some numbers, courtesy of Stephanie Ku's comprehensive history of Philippine clothing and fashion. According to her book, the monthly salary of a weaver in the province was around 1 to 2 pesos a month back in the 1850s. Meanwhile, a vara of piña which measured around 84 centimeters, was priced at 1 peso. So yes, a bolt of the fanciest cloth in the Philippines cost more than the monthly salary of the person who made it. That's just for the cloth. What if you wanted to buy a top made out of piña? Both men and women could have one sewn for 3 to 7 pesos apiece. But that price was just for plain piña baros. If you wanted one embroidered, the price for a men's baro could get jacked up to 50 to 100 pesos. If you had your own costurera at home, and many of the rich families did hire personal seamstresses, you could buy the embroidery separately. These frills and fritteries cost 2 to 9 pesos for one camisa, but bigger pieces could go up to 12 to 14 pesos. Now, what if you wanted to go whole hog and buy a dress ensemble for an upcoming party? Let's take the example of Doña Micaela Merino de López Verges, a socialite living in Madrid. She had a dress made in the Philippines that consisted of an embroidered piña shirt, a skirt, plus frills and embroidery. Her total bill, 600 pesos. But there were more expensive ones for sure. In 1875, a set of embroidery for just one dress ensemble was said to have cost more than 1,400 pesos. Meanwhile, in 1899, a no-holds-barred evening set made up of an extravagant piña camisa, an embroidered silk shirt, and a matching panuelo was estimated to be worth no less than $1,500. Hi! Sorry to interrupt. This is Leo, creator of the Colonial Department. If you're liking the episode so far, I'd really appreciate it if you click the subscribe or follow button for this podcast on the platform of your choice. Leave us a rating and review too. All of that will really go a long way in helping support this pod. And now, let's get back to some more Philippine history.
Walk around Iloilo in the mid-1800s and you hear the clacking and whirring of looms. A British observer even pointed out that in one town, every house had a weaver. Some of the huts of these weavers would proudly fly a piña flag to announce whether the fabric inside was for sale or for themselves. At fiestas, children would take down the flags and wave them in celebration. In the richer houses of the mestizo merchants, entire weaving workshops were set up inside apartment rooms. Even before the conquistadors arrived, Iloilo had a proud tradition of making fabrics and sewing cloth. As early as 1569, Spaniards observed Ilongos decked out in cotton and silk and weaving fabrics made out of abaca and other materials. They even had a lively trade going on with the Chinese, exchanging gold dust and bird's nest for textiles. By the 1800s, the province had established itself as the leading hub for weaving in the entire archipelago. Together with Camarines, it was also one of the top two producers of piña in the Philippines and therefore the world. For Ilongos, weaving was definitely big business. In 1854, a British consul estimated that manufactured fabrics made up more than half of the value of the province's total exports to the capital city of Manila. But in the next year, 1855, the Spanish opened up the provincial port to world trade and inadvertently kick-started a slow, inexorable change that would transform the face of Iloilo's industry. On the other side of the world, change had already come. Just like Iloilo, Manchester was known as a place of weavers. But by the end of the 1800s, the small market town had exploded into a bustling, teeming, heaving city filled with cotton factories and mills. Manchester's growth into the world's biggest textile producer was fueled by cotton shipped from slave plantations in the United States and supercharged with newly invented machines that replaced the slow, painstaking work of spinning yarn by hand with a ruthless, steam-powered efficiency. Manchester became jokingly known as Cottonopolis and its textiles were being shipped all over the world. Traders met every Tuesday and Friday inside the city's gargantuan Royal Exchange building to bid on yarn and cotton goods which would end up in markets as far afield as Africa and Brazil. British factories also began to sell vast quantities of woven and printed cotton to the Philippines. With Spain opening up its colony sports to the world, textile imports shot up. Inexpensive cloth from abroad began to muscle in on native-made fabric. Around the 1850s, a foreign observer wrote that even the Indians could buy cheap clothes made of cotton from abroad for only a few reals. Think of it as the colonial equivalent of fast fashion. In 1852, a 28-year-old British man, witty, well-spoken, and fond of quoting poetry in his letters, arrived in Iloilo and charmed his way to the province's upper society. His name was Nicholas Loney, and he had his entrepreneurial eye on developing Panay Island's sugar industry. He also saw the wide variety of weaves and textiles in Iloilo, and Loney's thoughts naturally turned to the textile industry of his own homeland. So what did he do? According to historian Stephanie Koo, He gathered samples of various local textiles and sent them to England's mechanized textile factories for reproduction. 
This was the same playbook that the British had used for the Indian weaving industry. Unfortunately, the same thing happened to Iloilo. How could the hand weavers of Iloilo, or anywhere else in the Philippines for that matter, hope to compete against the steam-wreathed machines of Manchester or Glasgow? Through Nicholas Loney's importing firm and other British merchant houses, inexpensive fabrics from abroad flooded local markets. In the late 1800s, piña was still being sold to Spanish royalty and exhibited in international expositions, but its heyday was drawing to a close. In a matter of decades, textile exports from the Philippines crumbled in value. From a high of 157,278 pesos in 1856, native textile exports were worth only around 10,455 pesos in 1890. In that same year, exports of piña and other high-quality fabrics shrank to less than 1% of their former value from just a few decades before. The Spanish tried their best to protect native textiles and, of course, textiles imported from Spain. They set up heavy tariffs in 1891 against British imports, but by then it was too little too late for the once vibrant textile industry of Iloilo. Nicolas Loney turned out to be all too successful. By wiping out Iloilo textiles, cheap British cotton forced the Ilongo entrepreneurs to shift their resources to sugar. They bought up land in neighboring Negros. They purchased steam-powered farming machines imported by Loney. And perhaps they hired former weavers who had abandoned their looms to find work in the fields. Nicholas Loney died in 1869. He was just 41 years old. According to a family member, All Iloilo followed him to his grave. In over 100 carriages beside lots of buffalo carts filled with people were there. He was buried under some palm trees by the seashore in the prettiest site that could be found. Over his grave rose a monument dedicated to the man who helped decimate an entire way of life and replaced it with a new monolith that would dictate the life and times of Iloilo, Negros, and the rest of Panay Island for a century to come, the sugar industry. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Colonial Department. If you found this episode about textiles interesting, I suggest you also tune into Season 2, Episode 5, which talks about Philippine attempts to set up its own silk industry and go head-to-head against China. My main references for this episode were 1. Stephanie Ku's award-winning history book on Philippine fashion entitled Clothing the Colony. 2. A scholarly article by Henry F. Funtecha on the Iloilo weaving industry. And 3. Benito Legarda's classic 99 book on the economic history of colonial Philippines. Information on the making of piña came from articles from Verifiles and the Textile Atlas. Quotes from sources were read by Anya Ong Reyes. Clips from Maria Clara at Ibarra as well as the Howie Severino podcast are from GMA7. The Colonial Department was written and produced by Leo Mangubat. Follow us on Instagram at The Colonial Department. <laughs>